standing and turning your Bibles to Hosea 11, verse 1. Before we read, let us pray for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word, the incredible blessing that it is to us. Please open our hearts and minds, Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Amen. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning, brothers and sisters. As Pastor Mock said, I am Connor Aubrey. I'm a ruling elder here at Cross Creek, and I am speaking to you here today because, uh, at, again, as Pastor Mock said, last week was General Assembly, and uh, I want to start by thanking Pastor Mock for asking me to do this and for the elders for giving me this opportunity. It's uh, truly an honor to speak here to you this morning. I want to give uh, you a little bit of background on myself, if you don't know me that well. Uh, I'm in the Army right now, but before I joined the Army, I was a teacher for several years. I taught middle and high school literature, history, and theology, and it was an amazing job, the best job I ever had, right? Uh, Because I got to spend my days reading and talking about some of the greatest stories uh, of all time, the the Odyssey by Homer, uh, Narnia, Until We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis, Canterbury Tales by Chaucer, The Song of Roland, goes on and on and on. But my favorite, which should come as no surprise because it's one of the greatest books of all time, uh, was The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, It still surprises me and baffles me uh, when I think about it today that I used to get paid money to talk about J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, I think nowadays it's more likely that people will pay me to stop talking about him, but that's okay. Um. And I, I legitimately think that J.R.R. Tolkien is, is one of, if not the greatest human authors of all time. The Lord of the Rings is one of the greatest human books of all time, second, of course, to the Silmarillion. But he's not the greatest author, and his stories are not the greatest stories of all time. Of course, I'm talking about uh, our almighty triune God and his story of redemption, or uh, what I've called the story of stories. And since we're talking about one part of this great story of stories this morning, I think it's worth taking time to consider stories in general. What makes a story good? Well, there are many things, certainly. Uh, Interesting characters, an engaging plot, a real conflict. Uh, Interestingly, I heard, or I once read a a theodicy, which is, uh, you know, an explanation of the problem of evil, and it used the Lord of the Rings as an example. Um, I said, you know, what would the Lord of the Rings be like without any evil? It would just be a bunch of hobbits sitting around eating all day, which is um, not really very good reading, right? So, um, so you, need, you need a real conflict. You need uh, good writing, may, many other things, right? But uh, you, might, you might read a good story or watch a, a good movie and, and then forget about it. Until, you know, several weeks, months, years down the road, somebody brings it up and you say, oh yeah, I, I read that book, I, I saw that movie, that was, a, that was a good book, that was a good movie, that was a good story. And then forget about it again once the conversation is done. 
I think that's what differentiates between a good story and a great story. A good story might grab your attention for the time, uh, but a great story doesn't leave you alone, does not let you go. A great story changes your life in some way, how you speak, the way you think, the choices you make, and so on. I, I don't mean that you have to start dressing and speaking like Aragorn after reading Lord of the Rings, but I do think about all the time that I've spent immersed in Tolkien's worldview, which is a decidedly Christian worldview, by the way. And I know that I am a very different man than I would have been if I had not checked out the Silmarillion from the Clemson University Library nearly 16 years ago. And I'm sure it's the same for many of you with many other different great stories. Well, if, if great human stories can change our lives like this, how much more should the great story of stories, a story of redemption written on living paper by our great God, change our lives? the way we think, act, speak, and love. It's one aspect of this greatest story and the way I think it can impact our lives that I would like to look at with you this morning. As we saw in our scripture readings, there's, there's a great theme running through the Bible of God's sons saved from slavery or exile and then called to serve him in response. That pattern was uh, is set out in our scripture this morning, Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The most familiar occurrence of this to probably many of us is uh, the redemption of Israel from Egypt. And so we'll be comparing and contrasting ourselves as New Covenant believers with the Israelites coming out of Egypt. And as we saw in our scripture readings also, uh, there's a great continuity and unity in the scriptural story. These stories contained in the Old and New Testaments are not just old stories about some other people long ago that only give us good or bad examples, but this is our family history. This was preserved for thousands of years for you and for me. And this theme of sons saved from slavery is not just for the past. It's not just speaking about the Israelites saved from Egypt or the Israelites saved from Babylon or even Christ saved from Herod, but it also serves to point ahead to our ultimate redemption from an ultimate slavery to become sons through the Son of God, par excellence, our older brother, Christ. Uh, a quick note, you'll notice that throughout the outline and, and throughout the exhortation, I will use the specific son to include, uh, instead of the more general sons and daughters, uh, I, I do this not to exclude anyone, but uh, because as uh, David B. Garner says in his excellent book, Sons in the Son, Quote, men, women, slaves, and free, all the redeemed are sons in the Son. The selection of son or sons serves Paul's purpose to expose the inviolable, indissoluble, indissoluble filial solidarity of the redeemed with the Redeemer. Just as the Pauline label of the church as the bride of Christ does not exclude males, <coughs> excuse me, the choice of huos or sons in Greek does not eliminate or alienate believing females who are also the sons of God, end quote. So I am neither excluding females nor letting you off the hook. Uh, So we're going to compare ourselves with the Israelites in Egypt in four areas, sonship, uh, slavery, salvation, and service. And as we do that, we'll see that because we have been saved from spiritual slavery and made sons in the true son of God, we must respond to our father with service full of joy, gratitude, 
and obedience. Let's consider ancient Israel first of all. What kind of a son was Israel? They were collectively God's chosen people, uh, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul in Romans 9, 4 and 5 says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. We saw in our first scripture reading from Deuteronomy that God chose Israel and covenanted with Israel to be their father and their God. That's an amazing thing for the creator of the universe, to choose a people small and unlovable, to make them his son. But it's, it was primarily understood as a, a national sonship. What kind of slavery were they under? It was brutal physical Slavery, where they were valued not as children of God, nor even as human beings, but only for the things they could produce for their masters. You only need to read through the early chapters of Exodus to see the kind of uh, horrible physical slavery they were under. There was another dimension to their slavery as well. They were unable to worship the Lord their God as they should. Remember, when Moses and Aaron first speak to Pharaoh, part of their plea is that Israel would be freed so that they may hold a feast to God in the wilderness. So there's a a physical and a spiritual dimension to their slavery. What about their salvation? Uh, Children, how did God save Israel from their slavery in Egypt? The plagues? Good. Plagues uh, and and, and lots of other miracles, right? Lots of other wonders and signs. He killed the firstborn son of the king of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. I want to just take a second and, and think about the parting of the Red Sea. I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like to walk across the Red Sea on dry land, this huge body of water, to walk across it on dry land, to, to be able to feel the spray from the towering walls of water on your face. I think that's, that's amazing. I, I try to imagine being a witness to that kind of miracle, but it's almost too incredible to imagine. He, God provided water from rocks and bread from air. I can hardly think of a, a more likely place to find water than a rock in the desert, right? <clears throat> it's amazing. What do you think your response would be if you were a witness to such wonders? Even reading about them leads me to amazement, and I'm sure you as well. What about seeing them and living them? Well, what was the Israelites' response to these wonders? Did they fall on their faces and worship and serve God with gratitude? No. What was was the response just a few short days, three days after the parting of the Red Sea? They grumbled and complained, and they longed to go back to slavery. The very verse after our scripture passage, Hosea 11.2, sums it up. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. That's not a very good service in response to a miraculous salvation, is it? Thanks for the freedom, God. Thanks for food. Thanks for the water. But no thanks. I wish I was still a slave in Egypt. I wish I was dead in Egypt. I don't know about you, but when I read about Israel's response to God's salvation of them from slavery, I I can't believe it. 
How could they be so ungrateful? How could they be so silly, so foolish? They had just seen the Lord their God part the Red Sea after a multitude of other miracles. They could visibly see God's presence with them in the pillar of cloud and fire. How could they, three short days later, desire to go back into slavery? I think we're often tempted to feel superior to them in in times like this. I know I am. So let's compare ourselves and, and see how we stack up. What kind of sons are we? We saw Paul's list of Israel's blessings, great, amazing blessings. It's incredible that the almighty God of the universe would covenant with a people small and powerless. But Israel's sonship was less than our sonship. Paul continues in in Romans 9, verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And just a chapter before, in chapter 8, Paul talks about us as heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. As Christ is an heir, so are you if you are in Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 2, near the end of an extended treatise on the surpassing worth <coughs> excuse me, and glory of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the author puts in verse 11, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is astounding to me. The Son of God, the radiance of the glory of God, superior to angels, whom God has established forever, is not ashamed to call me his brother, to call you his brother or sister. That's astounding. We who are so often ashamed to call him uh, our brother are willingly owned as his brothers without shame. That is a truly amazing love and truly amazing grace. We said in our examination of Israel's sonship that it was understood as a national sonship. I recently listened to a, a Sinclair Ferguson talk where he said, uh, I, I haven't done this to confirm, but I, I'll take his word for it. He said, if you took the pages of your Bible that contain the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 and 6, and hold them in your fingers, there would be more references in those two pages to people calling on God as their father personally than there would be in all Scripture to the left in the Old Testament. And you can tell that Israel's sonship wasn't understood personally because that's one of the things about Jesus' earthly ministry that made the Pharisees so angry is he, he called God his father and they tried to kill him for it. Whom did the Pharisees claim as their father? Abraham. Who do we claim as our father? Almighty God. We'll talk a little bit more about this later, but I think this gives us a good picture of the superiority of our sonship to Israel's sonship. Well, what kind of slavery were we saved from? Slavery to sin, slavery to Satan, slavery to death. And as we read in Romans 6, 16, it wasn't just slavery to sin and death, but it was a willing slavery. We willingly presented our bodies to sin and death as obedient slaves. And the first chapter of Romans talks about this in great detail. Natural, sinful humanity, such as we once were, uh, suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, exchanged the glory of God for images, worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, and give approval to those who practice wickedness. Although the Israelites' slavery was physically brutal and, and probably often fatal, and they weren't able to worship their God and Father in the way they wanted, spiritual slavery to sin and death is always fatal, <clears throat> and not just in a temporal way, but in an eternal way. Physical slavery might lead to bodily pain, 
but spiritual slavery leads to an eternal, never-ending torment of the soul. While there could be the possibility of individuals saving themselves from physical slavery, it is impossible for people to save themselves from spiritual slavery to sin and death. So our slavery was much, much worse. What about our salvation? We talked about the salvation that God worked out in rescuing Israel from Egypt. It was full of visible wonders, visible manifestations of God's presence and power. But what of our salvation? Well, no water turned to blood like it did in Egypt, but the fullness of the image of God, his only son, became a man and had, and even now still has, human blood flowing through his veins. God didn't kill the firstborn son of the Roman emperor like he did to the pharaoh in Egypt, but he allowed his only son, the son of the king, to be killed by vile men for our sakes. No rivers or seas or no huge body of water was parted like the Red Sea, but the bottomless gulf between our sinful selves and the holy God was bridged, allowing us access to the Father on his throne. No bread came from heaven, no water came from a rock, but the rock gave his own body and blood for us to eat and drink. We don't see the presence of God in cloud and fire, but we have the Spirit of God dwelling within our very hearts. Whose salvation is greater? Ours, by far. Now we come to service. Because our slavery was worse and our salvation was greater, leading to a sonship that is incomparably greater, it should stand to reason that our service to God will be much higher, much purer, much better, and much more glorifying to God. Surely we will not respond to our great God and Father and His salvation with bitterness, complaining, and longing to return to our former slavish ways. Is that your experience? Is that reality? Unfortunately, every honest believer will agree with Paul in Romans 7 that I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Although we have been really and truly saved out of our slavery and are slaves to sin no more, for sin has no power over us, we often long to return to our slavery. This should put to rest any boasting on our parts about being superior to the ancient Israelites. We should react with better service than they did because of the greatness of our salvation, but we do the same as they did and worse. This is certainly bad news, but as as we often say in the, the youth Sunday school class, without bad news, there, there can't be any good news. So what is the remedy? What is the good news? As with everything, we need to look to our older brother, Christ. In our assurance of pardon from Hebrews 12, uh, verse 2, what was the command given? Let's <clears throat> remember the context here. Hebrews chapter 11 is sometimes called the, the hall of faith, where we have great example after great example of our forefathers, and mother's uh, faith in God. But the follow-up command isn't lay aside the sin that so easily entangles and run with endurance the race set before you as you look to them and emulate them. We should have godly examples in our lives. We should seek to uh, emulate godly men and women, but that's not what the author to the Hebrews wants us to do here, first of all. The follow-up command is to 
lay aside the sin that so easily entangles, and run with endurance the race set before you as you look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Not have faith as they had faith, but have faith in the one in whom they had faith. Maybe you've had this experience before of uh, your parents telling you to act like your older sibling. Uh, Why can't you be more like blank? I wish you were more like blank. Uh, Or maybe if you're a parent, you've said something like that to your child. That's generally not thought of as a pleasant experience, right? But here, it's, it's glorious. We can never fully act like our older brother on this side of glory. But each day, we are called and enabled to put on our older brother by the power of his spirit and become daily more and more transformed into his image for his glory and the expansion of his kingdom. So study the greatest story ever told. Learn how it applies to your life. Learn more deeply each day what kind of slavery you were in, what kind of salvation God wrought for you, and what kind of son you are to what kind of a father. You might know that I love the theology of adoption, the amazing blessings that we have been given because of our adoption through the true Son of God. Just as as one example, Paul in Ephesians 1 talks about the Holy Spirit being a down payment on the inheritance that we will receive as sons of God in glory. Just think about that. The third person of the Trinity is only a down payment. That's not to diminish the worth of the Holy Spirit, but that's to point to the surpassing worth and glory of our inheritance as sons of God. I think that's pretty amazing. And our own Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 12 lists some of these benefits. We enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon us, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, and provided for. But there is another aspect of the doctrine of adoption that we don't always talk about as much because it's not nearly as much fun. And the confession lays it out in the very next phrase. It says, we are chastened by him as by a father. And the author of the Hebrews talks about the discipline we should expect to receive from our Heavenly Father further on in chapter 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And we also owe our father something. We talked about it with the service we are due to give to God. Why do we owe service to God? Because he is our father. Children, uh, do your fathers care about you obeying them? Okay, yes, right. It's, it's a big deal, right? Why do you think they care? Because they love you. And they want to teach you to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. But they also care because you owe them that obedience. God has given them authority and you owe them obedience because of that authority. Maybe, uh, parents, you have, been, you, you have heard the question, uh, you know, why, why do I have to do this? And you have responded or thought to respond because I said so. That's fairly common, right? It, and it might not be the most helpful answer, but it is a truthful answer. It's a, it's a good answer, right? Why do we obey God's law? Because he said so. And because he is our loving and wise father, and we trust him to know what's best for our lives, 
And as we continue to obey, we learn more and more how wise and loving he is. And we learn to love his law and to love obeying him for his own sake. Another part of the remedy is to examine your service. Is it up to the standard? Obviously not, since the standard is perfection. But think about in what ways, personally, do you respond to God's salvation like the Israelites did? How do you complain against God? How are you bitter against God? How do you personally long to return to the slavery of sin? We talked in the Youth Sunday School class this morning about the beginning of the first half of John chapter 5. Uh, if you remember, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, and he claims lordship of the Sabbath and claims his divine sonship. Uh, we, we also talked about how one thing that is so distasteful to the modern mind about Christianity is the exclusive claims of Jesus. He is the way, the only way, the truth, the only truth, and the life, the only life. And thus far, this exhortation has been an exclusive exhortation. It has been exclusively addressed to the sons of God. What if you are not a son or daughter of God right now? Where do you fit in? These promises don't apply to you. If you are not a son of God, you are still in Egypt. You are still in bondage to sin, and the wages that you are earning for yourself are death. There is cause for sorrow if you find yourself outside of God's family this morning. But take heart. As we said in our scripture readings, just as Israel was not chosen by God because they were already holy, but were made holy because they were chosen by God, we also are not made sons of God because of any inherent goodness or worth in us. And if Christ is not ashamed to call me his brother, he will not be ashamed to call you his brother. As the hymn puts it, all the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him, and this he gives you. If you feel your need of Christ this morning, rejoice and put your trust in him. He is willing and able to save you from your spiritual slavery, and his spirit is willing and able to make you a son of God. In closing, I want to leave you with a point of application and this thought. If Israel in the wilderness is sometimes an unhappy picture of how we react to God's salvation, Israel in the book of Joshua is a picture of the task before us. Michael Barrett, in his book with Dr. Joel Beakey, uh, entitled A Radical Comprehensive Call to Holiness, puts it like this, quote, The conquest of Canaan is an illustration of progressive sanctification, particularly of the necessary cooperation between God and the believer. Over and over again, God told the nation to possess the land because he had already driven out every enemy. God has achieved our victory over sin, but sin does not flee from us just because we have been saved. It does not give up its hold on us without a fight. If we enjoin the conflict, claiming all that God has promised and Christ has won, and fighting against sin with all our renewed resolve, we can enjoy the victory. End quote. The victory is yours, brothers and sisters, if you have been saved from sin to become a son, but it is not without work. Just as the Canaanites didn't hand over the keys to their land when Joshua and the Israelites came knocking, sin will not give up its dominion over you without a fight. We are always called to look at earthly things or horizontal things in light of heavenly realities or vertical realities. So just as a quick example, last week was Father's Day. Uh, 
And we are called to interpret, interpret and judge our earthly fathers in light of God as our heavenly father. If my kids got it the other way around and decided what God as their heavenly father is like based on me as their earthly father, they would be very disappointed in God because I often disappoint them as their earthly father. But they should instead judge me as an earthly father in light of who God is as their heavenly father. And so to apply that to this situation, we need to look at our present reality, believers before the promised land, in light of our future reality, believers in the promised land. We shouldn't decide what heaven will be like based on what earth is like, but we should decide how to act on earth based on the promised glory of heaven. The last verse of the great hymn, Jesus, I, my cross have taken, goes like this. Soon shall close thy earthly mission, soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition, faith to sight, and prayer to praise. When we are in the promised land, we will have fruition, sight, and praise in person. We will be home. But now we have an earthly mission. We have pilgrim days. Now we have hope and faith and prayer. What is it that those things have in common? Well, they all take work. Yes, innumerable glories await us in heaven, not because of anything we have done, but only because of what Christ has done on our behalf. But we're not called to sit and wait here doing nothing. Have hope, have faith, pray, gird your loins, fight, put sin to death, drive sin out, leave no sin alive, dash your sins against the rocks, and run with endurance the race set before you. Brothers and sisters, through the blood of our brother Christ, let us look to our older brother and fight sin and death as he did in the power of his spirit for his glory. Let us pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you as members of your family. We thank you that you love us and that you have called us out of our spiritual slavery to become your sons. Give us a greater sense and understanding of our sin, of our salvation, and of our sonship, so that we might better serve you in your glory. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, our brother, Jesus Christ. Amen.